0: Welcome to Love Nature, a presentation of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. This episode explores the world of citizen science as we talk to science educator and entomologist Chris Goforth, who also leads the citizen science efforts here at the museum. If you have ever wondered how you can get involved in scientific research, this episode is for you. If you are enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and share it with others. You can find the show and subscribe at love-nature.org, and you can explore the museum at naturalsciences.org. Now, here are our hosts, CEO and Director of the Museum, Dr. Eric Dorfman, and Chief Veterinarian and Director of Veterinary Services, Dr. Dan Dombrowski.
1: Chris, go forth. It is great to have you on the show.
2: Welcome.
3: I'm happy to be here.
2: My first question or, or first discussion I hope to have really just starts with the definition of citizen science. So we've talked about it a little bit on the show and we've got uh, you here today and we're, we're dying to ask you about your, your job and your career and how it focuses on citizen science.
3: So I say Citizen Science is a partnership between the public and professional researchers to answer scientific questions. And so what that means is that this is a way that anyone, regardless of their level of experience with science in the past, can contribute something meaningful to science. Uh, So they're generating new knowledge that's useful to someone in some way uh, and is actually contributing something real to real research.
1: So you don't have to have any experience at all of that.
3: Not necessarily. Um, Some people have a lot and some people have next to none or none. Uh, It just depends a little bit on the project and kind of what they're asking you to do. Some require a little bit more expertise than others, but a lot of them are very entry level. And if you've never done any science at all, but you just have an interest, that's going to be sufficient.
1: Great. So and what about now? We've got a number at the museum. We've got a number of citizen science projects and I, I love for you just to talk a little bit about what they are what 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 could people do in your program
3: one of the projects i really love is done by the genomics lab at the museum uh, is called monkey health explorer uh, that is an online based project where they have given you a photo of a slide a, a blood smear slide of a, a rhesus monkey a rhesus macaque and you are classifying the types of blood cells that you see so they're really interested in kind of immune cells so you're looking for white blood cells and other immune related cells in the slides and basically mark them on the screen and count how many there are that project because it's entirely online provides you training the first time you log in shows you what those different cell types look like how to mark them Uh, it's kind of got the the training built right in which is a really really great opportunity Uh, Mm -hmm. we have um space project so one of our astronomers um, has a project looking at spiral galaxy shapes and has people mapping spiral galaxies they're basically just tracing the arms on the spiral galaxies Uh, i run a project called the dragonfly swarm project where i'm looking at uh, dragonfly swarming behavior worldwide and people basically just tell me stories about these big Mm. groups of dragonflies that they saw so that one's an insect behavior related project
1: how much from your experience, how much citizen science data makes it out into the, the useful science world, do you think?
3: I would like to think that most of it does. Um, most yeah. people have like a real question. They're trying to answer with their, their data. So they're really working towards some end goal with the, mm. the data collection that they're doing. So they're really trying to further their own work um, mm. using this data that is generated by the public um and there actually there's another type of citizen science as well we've really been talking about kind of top-down kind of scientists generating the projects themselves but there's also this kind of other approach where people can be interested in solving a problem in a neighborhood or a community or you know for their themselves and they're reaching out to scientists to get the help that they need to collect the data that they need to be able to actually pursue that problem and try to solve it uh, So. That has a little bit of a different kind of approach. Um, they're trying to actually solve a problem at the end, and they are really invested in solving that problem. Right. And so a lot of times they want to use that data to help better their own lives or their communities.
1: Their what own would community. be an example of that kind of project?
3: Well, I always think of the the Flint water crisis uh, for this one. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the lead in the water was really confirmed by parents who were unhappy about their children getting sick. They thought that it was coming from the water. Uh, They reached out to a lot of scientists and were turned down by a lot of them and finally got one that could help them collect the the data that they needed from their their tap water to show that there was actually lead in the water. So that was, you know, parents with sick children, they're very heavily invested in the outcome of that. Mm -hmm. They wanted to collect data that was rigorous enough to prove that what they thought was happening was actually happening.
2: Is there a network or is there a way people can sort of reach out and get involved either in these uh, sort of preset projects or or like you said, when they have an idea or a community issue that they want to apply science to?
3: Yeah, for community issues, a lot of times you already kind of have a built in network. You know, you're reaching out to your friends and other members of your community. Um, you might work through a community center, or a, you know, a library or a school. Uh, so you, a lot of times you have that kind of built in um, for the top down kinds of things. Um, A lot of scientists are using a a platform called SciStarter, uh, and that is an aggregator of citizen science projects. And anyone that has a citizen science project can put their project on SciStarter, uh, and then people can go there and search for a variety of different things, depending on what they're interested in. They search by topic or by what they want to do, whether they want to be outside or inside, where they're going to be located, uh, and find projects that kind of fit their interests.
1: You know, there has been a lot of commentary from public, especially underserved communities who may not be citizens. What do you think about the name citizen science and is there something we should be thinking about instead?
3: Yeah, that uh, that's a really big question in the field right now. Um, it's been hotly debated. Um, I think... Citizen science is problematic. Um, for the the just the word citizen is problematic on its own. Um, it might be slightly less problematic in our area than other areas, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good thing to use um, because you know you want everyone to feel welcome. Mm. But there has been a little bit of a backlash. A lot of people are moving to community science, um, but there's there have been some very vocal people who are very opposed to the idea of using citizen community science instead of citizen science, mostly because the environmental justice community has been using community science for a long time and they don't always see themselves as part of citizen science. Like the citizen science community sees them as part of citizen science, but they don't necessarily see themselves as part of citizen science. And they're not very happy all the time about us co-opting their word uh, or their name, the way they do things. And so there's been actually a pretty big backlash from, um, some very vocal people about using community science instead of citizen science for that reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I've not personally been really gung-ho about community science as a word, but there's nothing else that's really better. Um, I I like the things that are more like... (sighs) public participation in scientific research is probably the best thing that actually describes what people are doing but it's so long you know no one ever wants to say public participation in scientific research that's insane um (laughs) ppsr doesn't mean anything to anyone that's not in the field um and it's really more of like a collaborative science or i i I just don't think anyone's really come up with a good name yet
2: as a scientist or as a veterinarian um, and a scientist, uh, we we a lot of times uh, what we do, or we we always try to end in publication, right? Do these projects lead to peer review publications? Like, do you have examples of of you know data collected and and being published?
3: Yeah, I mean that happens all the time. It most of the people that are running these projects do want to publish the data, unless it's a you know community based one where you're trying to solve a, a local problem. That one might not get published, but. Uh, one of my favorite examples is actually a dragonfly example Uh, there were researchers that used data from iNaturalist uh, which is a um, wildlife sharing platform Uh, it's not a citizen science project on its own but can be used to generate citizen science projects within the platform Uh, they took pictures of blue dasher dragonflies and classified how much amber coloration there was on the wings and then looked at a latitudinal gradient to see if there were differences in how much amber Um, was present on the wings, depending on how far north or south they were. And they discovered that there was a difference that the ones further north have um, more amber than the ones in the south. And then they did some thermoregulation experiments in the lab to show that that amber coloration heats up the dragonflies. So if you're further north, it's more important for you to stay a little bit warmer than if you're further south where it's a lot hotter outside. And so that coloration is helping them thermoregulate depending on kind of where they are.
1: Amazing, you've got another one called Dragonfly Detectives, don't you? Mm-hmm. what's What's that one about?
3: So that one was designed to be both a citizen science project. It, I have actual scientific questions looking at how weather impacts dragonfly behavior. There's mm-hmm. a lot of evidence showing that dragonflies are very, very heavily impacted by weather. So if the if clouds come over, for example, that will change how they fly or how much they fly. And obviously there's a lot of clouds that fly over or uh, you know, pass over. So that can really impact their behaviors. Um, so I'm really interested in that. But we also wanted a project that kids could participate in. And so that one was really designed as both a question, a scientific question and an educational program for kids. And so we had kids going out to outdoor facilities uh, across North Carolina over um, five years. And participating in this project, they were doing a bunch of fun things, just learning about the natural world and aquatic environments. But then they were also collecting data on this um, weather question that I had, um, which weather conditions were impacting dragonflies the most. So they were counting dragonflies that they saw at their ponds, one particular species, the common whitetail, and then they were measuring weather. Um, parameters, and so we nice. can compare what the weather parameters at the time of their data collection was, with the counts that they got. Uh, and see kind of how those little micro changes in the weather actually impact their flight behavior.
2: I can just tell you're lighting up talking about, especially bugs. I'll throw that out there. You're yes. an entomologist, right? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> all right, so you're an entomologist and you're a scientist and an educator. To tell us how, I mean, how of your connections, like how did this all start?
3: Well, I did not expect to be where I am. I will say that um, my job that I have now did not exist when I was a kid, uh, and so this is a fairly recent thing in the last decade or so, or 15 years. My parents were really outdoorsy when I was a kid. So we spent a lot of time outside. My dad was a very serious amateur geologist. Um, we were up in the mountains in Colorado pretty much every weekend when I was a kid, either collecting minerals or we were fishing, um, which for my sister and me was mostly splashing around in the water, um, <laughs> playing with bugs and you know swimming. We didn't fish that much um, compared to our parents, but you know sometimes, you just wanted to stay home and do things with your friends and your parents are dragging us outside uh, to do these outdoors (laughs) things. But, you know, looking back, I think it was a really good way to grow up. And then we spent, you know, most of our time outside as well when we were home. So, you know, running around our neighborhood, collecting bugs. Um, I had a, a neighbor girl across the street that I got really into insects with. We just, we started collecting grasshoppers in their garden. They had a big vegetable garden, uh, and we started collecting grasshoppers and that turned into this whole huge insect collection that we developed, like hundreds and hundreds of specimens. We wow. basically made an insect museum in this little room under their stairs and invited all these people over to see it. Uh, and this was in in middle school. So got really obsessed with insects at that point and then realized my first day of ninth grade that entomologist was a job you could have and I'm like well that's what I'm gonna do <laughs> so I ended up going to a little tiny private liberal arts college Colorado College in Colorado Springs Colorado got a biology degree because that was the most specific I could get at my tiny little college uh, and then ended up going to grad school at the University of Arizona um, and got a master's degree working on giant water bugs um, which are The most amazing insects, and I love them. (laughs) Um, Dragonflies have always been my favorite, and the water bugs will never pass those, but giant water bugs are absolutely fascinating, and they were such a great animal to work on. Wow. Um, But if you're studying eggs on the backs of a little insect no one cares about, it's really hard to convince people to give you a job. So I ended up having a second <laughs> job looking at water quality, um, uh, You know, something that was actually useful to people. And uh, ended up seeing this big dragonfly swarm one day at a lake that never had dragonflies that we were doing water quality studies. And that turned into my dragonfly swarm project, which got me completely into citizen science. Um, once I started asking people to share these stories of these dragonfly swarms they were seeing, like this is the way people should do science you know people are sharing things with me on a topic i can't study myself because it's so rarely observed that you just can't collect enough data and then you can invite all these other people into the process and it's amazing
1: did you have any role models who sort of you saw that and thought right this is where i'm i'm headed
3: well i already decided by the time i was going to college that I wanted to be an entomologist. Um, So the things that I did in college were really focused on insects as much as possible. Like anytime we had a project, like in my ecology class, you know, I did an insect study, but I did have an amazing advisor um, who was an entomologist uh, and a female entomologist. She'd gotten her degree in the seventies, which was the time that there weren't all that many women entomologists. She was great. She studied um, pollination, uh in bees in Wyoming during the summers like she wore she wore these long denim skirts and then we'd go collecting and she'd like romp into these creeks and just get this <laughs> completely soaked denim skirt um always wore like the same headband every day um it was just a very very bizarre person but she was fabulous um and really supported my interest in insects and she let me work for my my work study on the tiny little insect collection that we had at our our college
0: oh, wow. so that was
3: what i got paid to do move bugs around in boxes and identify things and bring new specimens in
1: what, what about what about you now well, who do you hope to inspire with the work that you do
3: uh i think just the general public really i think you know science is very close to a lot of people and It's hard for you to see yourself as a scientist if you've never actually done something real Um, with science. uh, I think I actually did not like science that much, even though I knew I wanted to be a scientist Ah, um, in high school, because every time you did an experiment, it was something that you knew the answer to already. Like you knew what you were supposed to get at the end. And that's not the way science actually works. And it really frustrated me because I wanted something more authentic and not doing the exact same thing you know millions of other people have done before me and i think citizen science gives people the opportunity to actually do that you know that you have the opportunity to be the first person in the world to see something you have the opportunity to contribute a piece of data that is essential for understanding how something works you are contributing real information to real people that actually want to answer real questions Uh, And so it's a way to do authentic science that I feel like we've been denied access to for most of our educational experiences.
2: Interesting. So as you're breaking down those barriers and sort of getting folks involved in science that that may not be otherwise and introduced to nature and science, can you share a a story, a success story or, or a little bit about some of your participants or something that stands out to you?
3: Yeah, um, my very favorite was a girl who participated in dragonfly detectives at the um, museum's Prairie Ridge Eco Station facility. Her mom actually emailed us after the first day they were out in the field, um, and I had a person who was working for me at the time that was actually leading most of the, the session, so she forwarded it to me. This girl was really unhappy because she was worried that our catching the dragonflies was hurting them. Uh, And she was so worried about it that she'd gotten really stressed and had this like massive anxiety attack when she went home and didn't really want to come back um, because it was really, really not working for her mentally. So I ended up emailing her mom saying that I would be happy to come down and actually work with them the next time, um, you know, try to make those fears go away as much as possible and hopefully, you know, get her involved. Um, And so I did that and, you know, spent a day down there with them, um, ran around catching bugs with her. By the end of the time I was with her, she was, you know, holding the dragonflies and was smiling and was really happy. Her mom (laughs) emailed me to tell me that she was, Much happier about it. But then, after they were done, she actually started this whole dragonfly club for the people in her homeschool group and uh, was taking all these kids out to ponds and teaching them how to identify the dragonflies and how to catch them. And, uh, you know, was bringing her a little field guide that she got out of the the, um, program and uh, just sharing it with other people. And I just thought that was so amazing because, you know, she went from being absolutely terrified she was destroying these animals to being completely fascinated by them and taking other people out to learn about them too.
1: Are there aspects of science or or aspects of projects that lend themselves more to citizen science than not?
3: I do think there is a really heavy emphasis on environmentally focused projects of various types. So those would include all the biological science type ones. Uh, I think because those were the early adopters of the kind of modern way we do citizen science, you know, using right. the internet, having people report things that they see. Those are not the only projects out there. There's so many others. Right. Um, there's a lot of environmental health projects that are really important. There are a lot of things that aren't necessarily even considered science specifically, like social sciences have a lot of projects where people are transcribing logs and um, right. you know, yeah, documenting sure. historical records. So there's, a lot of different opportunities for people to participate in a lot of different ways. There's always a little bit of a question at the citizen science conferences, you know, about like why are there always so many of these environmental kind of projects and they kind of (laughs) overshadow the rest of them. Um, Honestly, I think it's just because it's, it's easier a lot of times to do those. You know, people care about those things that live around them. They want to learn more about them and that's a really easy way to kind of get into learning more about, you know, your neighborhood birds or the bees that live in your garden. But like those health projects are really important too. And, you know, we've got all these astronomy projects and there's just so, so many opportunities out there if people just know they exist.
1: What, what about the pandemic? How has that affected your work, participation, and maybe w- what people see as a valuable project?
3: So, citizen science exploded when COVID started um, because there were so many people that suddenly found themselves with time that they didn't have before whether that was by choice or you know something that was good for them or not it was an entirely different matter but a lot of people were suddenly home and needed to do something uh, and so there were a lot of really great opportunities for people to get involved in a way that they might not have been able to otherwise most people that were involved in citizen science were really busy during the pandemic um yeah just because so many people were contributing data, uh, so many people wanted these opportunities. I know what I ended up doing was, normally I do a lot of in-person trainings where, you know, people come to us and we teach them how to do a project and give them resources they need to do them and then send them on their way and hope they're going to do them. So I just transitioned all that online. And so I had a series of videos where I trained people how to do a project um, through a somewhere between 10 and 20 minute video, walk them through like how to collect the data, how to enter it, um, any tips and tricks for how to identify the things that they needed or whatever they were doing. And then I launched those on Mondays. And then on Fridays, I had people from the projects or people that did research with the data from those projects um, do kind of ask the scientist kind of thing for an hour. And we just invite the public to join us and ask questions and get answers about like how this data was actually impacting the people that wanted them and like how they were actually using it and things that they'd learned from these these projects uh, so there, i think there were there were a lot of online opportunities um, citizen science tends nice. to be kind of online to begin with um, and so it was it was a pretty easy transition for people in this field actually um, when you suddenly found everyone home <laughs>
2: Is, is there, uh, just again to recap, you've mentioned so many cool projects, how can listeners get involved or where where's the best place for them to go find information on uh, these citizen science projects they can participate in?
3: Yeah, if they're interested in our museum's projects specifically, they can go to naturalsciences.org backslash citizenscience and it will take you to the citizen science page on our website. And so you can see our list of current projects we have there. But scistarter.org is really like the best place to go to look for all all projects. Um, all the museum's projects that we have are on site starter, and so we can we can see all of those there.
2: Well, Chris, it was amazing to talk to you. Thank you so much for, for being a guest and telling us all about citizen science at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences and, and around the world, too. Yeah, thanks for being with us, Chris.
3: Well, thank you, and I hope everyone that's listening will go out and actually find a project they want to participate in and, you know, give it a try.
1: That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Wow, that was amazing, Eric. It's always so much fun to to talk to Chris and and hear about her job. She has a really cool job, bringing people to to science and science to people. What what do you think? What was your take home message from our interview today? Well, for
1: me, it's all about breaking down the barriers of science, you know, that we, we do that within the museum where guests can come and see the science process happening through glass. They can see laboratories and people working and making discoveries. Well, this to me is even more on that trajectory where in order to break down the barriers of, between a participant and science, It's so much easier to do that if you're involved and you're invested in making those discoveries. So that's really amazing. But also, as Chris said, it's actually helping gather data that researchers couldn't do on their own. And and so both of those things, for me, are are really important parts of this whole field of, of work.
0: Thank you for joining us for Love Nature. Our next episode features Professor of Architecture at NC State University, George Elvin. We will discuss architecture and mitigating the negative effects of human design on the environment. So you never miss an episode, be sure to subscribe and please share with others who may enjoy our content. You can find all of the links discussed in this episode, as well as ways to subscribe at love-nature.org. You can check out all our museum has to offer at naturalsciences.org. Love Nature is a production of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences, located in beautiful downtown Raleigh, North Carolina.